Hi, it's Mike. Sometimes you hear podcasters say, leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Does it? I think it might. Why not try it? Please follow us and do recommend the show to others. And if you can, leave a review in your own mind, in your own hearts, or especially on one of those big websites that keeps the reviews and shows them to the rest of the public. It's Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The French took to the streets again today. Emmanuel Macron had proposed raising the retirement age two years from 62 to 64. He told the French they'll just have to work. The response was immediate. A strike. We shall not work. They're good at that. They love shutting it all down in France, and they like being able to do it 20 years before their average life is up. Yeah, in the U.S., we're having similar debates about Social Security, but the lifespan here is 77. In France, it's 82. The French did give the U.S. a bit of a gift when Macron, that's not how you pronounce it, but you know, I just know there's a ch in there somewhere, so I tried. Macron and other Europeans objected to new provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that give subsidies to companies to reduce emissions. Okay, good. Uh-huh, but only U.S. companies. European companies don't qualify. And that's when the charge of protectionism came into play. Joe Biden loved it. He was speaking before union workers today and said, quote, you see, I'm getting criticized internationally for focusing too much on America. To hell with that. And you won't believe what he ended his statement with the words, this is real serious. Oh, no, you didn't, Emmanuel. This really does work out for everyone. Macron says something vaguely in his nation's self-interest. Biden thunders back with a posture that he's sticking it to the French. Macron gets to show his people, see, now I'm fighting for you against the Americans. Biden gets to assert, but I'm serious. I mean, you can tell I'm serious. I said hell. I don't say hell lightly. I say it when I'm serious. Also today, when he said this. Doesn't mean we're going to agree and fight like hell. But let's treat each other with respect. And that was him speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast. And the nation in question, USA. To hell with anyone who says it's not. You know, you can't say the French, but you can say the United States of America. Woohoo! I'm serious. Let us pray. On the show today, I spiel about the richest man in India. No, wait, the second richest man in India. Hold on, some guy in India. But first, the Democratic National Committee is meeting in Philadelphia this weekend to make a pretty serious decision. Not who will be their nominee for 2024, but the itinerary that person will adhere to, rethinking the primary calendar. My guest today, Josh Putnam, is an expert on the primary system, and he joins me to talk about what's on the table, i.e., what's the matter with Iowa? Quite a lot. I mean, it's a lovely state, but those primaries or caucuses, boy. Josh Putnam, up next. The Democrats are considering changing their primary and caucus schedule. In fact, caucuses 
have gone the way of the smoke-filled rooms. They used to be seen as quite a progressive development. Now they're seen as regressive. I guess what matters is who won the last batch of caucuses. So Iowa didn't go well. A lot of that had to do with the technology involved. But the thinking also goes, I think some of that might have to do with Iowa. Is it Iowans we want so prominent in the selection process? I also have to tell you that Republicans may be rethinking, rejiggering the rules. Joining me now is the dean of this arena. He's Josh Putnam. Go to the site frontloadinghq.com. Just do that after this interview because much of what we talk about in audio form will be there in visual and print form. Josh is a political science PhD and a consultant specializing in delegate selection rules, the founder of FHQ Strategy. LLC. A lot of initials, Josh. Initially, what was your take when you heard the Democrats were going to change things up? Well, you know, I, I, I stretch back to, to 2020 and the immediate aftermath of Iowa when folks were saying, look, this spells the end for Iowa. Um, and the day after, I was kind of tasked with uh, sitting down to think about, um, is that actually going to happen? Um, and, and what may stand in the way of that. And, and what has typically stood in the way is that it's just very difficult to change these rules, um, mm -hmm. that there are interests involved, um, state parties, state governments, and so on and so forth, that, that um, make Iowa and New Hampshire uh, both quite nimble at uh, maneuvering around any changes to uh, Democratic National Committee or Republican National Committee rules, for that matter. Um, if, if either side decides to make those changes. Um, and the Democrats have taken the first step towards making that change with the vote they had um, at the beginning of December um, to um, reshuffle the, the early state lineup in, in their process. Is this a collective action problem that there are probably 49 states who would like Iowa not to be first, but there isn't a consortium or a, a voting block of a dozen that point to any one state and say you should be first? That's certainly been a part of the problem in the past is that trying to get, you know, it's, a, it's, it's easy to say, let's get rid of Iowa for diversity issues or general election competitiveness issues or what have you. It's another thing altogether to say, here is our replacement for Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, but the Democrats, I think, have made a, a shrewd decision in, in putting South Carolina into that slot. Um, certainly, there are reasons to think it's a poor choice. Um, but one of the main reasons that, that um, it, it got the nod was because, um, gosh, it's, it's easier to move the South Carolina primary around than it is some of these other contests. It's the party, the state party, that gets to decide where that date is, not the state legislature or state government that are making those decisions. So there are no partisan constraints there. It's easy to move South Carolina so, around. So I guess the big arguments against Iowa or New Hampshire, but let's take Iowa since it's in the uh, it's on the chopping block. One is the fact that they really mishandled their caucus last time. With no one even knows who won to the, at this point. If you have a strong opinion on uh, if 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 it was Buttigieg or who, who it was, uh, let me know. But. So one of the arguments is demographically, it's much whiter than the uh, country and than, than Democratic voters. Two are just caucuses uh, have been disfavored. And three is why keep rewarding this state that doesn't at least meet you halfway? Am I getting, am I missing out on any of the other strong arguments against Iowa? I think entering into the calendar year 2022, that's the, the argument that would be made. I think the process that the, the Democratic National Committee and, and through its rules and, rules and bylaws committee have done this, this year 
to examine the states and require them to, to apply for these waivers, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina included, um, is that Iowa had made um, some attempt, and, and I suspect they will continue to make these attempts regardless of where they end up on the calendar, to move from what we've traditionally uh, referred to as a moving caucus where everybody gathers around and gathers in groups or clusters of, of supporters of particular candidates and so on and so forth, and that whole rigmarole that takes hours and hours on end in some places um, and replacing it with a pretty much an all mail-in um, uh, primary um, uh, process for this, this go around. Again, that hasn't gone through the whole process of being approved by the National Committee and all that, but I suspect that's what they're going to do this time around. By the way, do you have a strong feeling if uh, Buttigieg beats Sanders or Sanders beat Buttigieg? Oh, I, I don't. Um, I think the important... <laughs> Isn't it? So let, I'll just stop you there. Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know about the all-important Iowa caucus? Like, no one knows who won and it doesn't matter. Well, <laughs> I, I think it speaks to the state of, of the Iowa Democratic Party, right? I mean, this is basically the second cycle in a row where they've had a tie, right? I yeah. mean, there were questions about who won um, the, the 2016 caucuses. I mean, I think it was much clearer that Clinton had won, but I think what we see is is that um, if, if you're going to be in that leadoff spot, right, helps to be decisive. And, and for two cycles in a row, there have been questions about that. Yeah. And a caucus, and especially the way Iowa does caucus, might be a nice way to pick leaders. It's just not the way we do it in America. It's like, why have a practice round in fact, a sorting mechanism that is so dissimilar to the actual mechanism of predicting or selecting a leader. You could even say that the demographic critique falls under that rubric as well. The practice rounds are so dissimilar from the playoff rounds, let's say, that it's not useful for us. Right. I, I think there's something to that. Right. I mean, I, 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 what I would lean on in this instance is that I, I, I feel like uh, Iowa Democrats. Uh, well, the, the caucus system in general is just not well equipped to deal with a crush of participation. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they were Iowa Democrats were able to get through a 2008 cycle where it was crazy. Right. They still have not matched those levels of participation when. It was Obama and Clinton and John Edwards that were involved in, in the caucuses. But I think getting through that, being able to manage that, has given them a false sense of, of uh, what they're able to accomplish in any given cycle. And that in each subsequent cycle since then, I guess 2012 notwithstanding, um, you know, they just haven't been able to match that, that uh, efficiency more or less. Or as the spotlight of scrutiny has gotten that much more uh, bright, they just haven't been able to perform under it. How many states had caucuses in 2020? How many do you expect to have them in 2024? Well, Iowa will continue to have a caucus in name only. They'll call it a caucus. It'll run like a party-run primary. Um, and I suspect uh, Nevada was the only other caucus state at the end of the day in, in 2020. They've already shifted to a primary. So that's, that's pretty much it. Wyoming started off the 2020 cycle as a caucus, but um, when the pandemic hit, they had to alter their plans and went to a mail process that was pretty much like a, a primary. South Carolina might be moving to the front of the queue. Assess those chances and also tell me what you think about the arguments for or against. The arguments for are it's small state, so it's better not to, you can't really do California being the first in the country, too many electoral votes, and, you know, it's only based on TV ad buys. So it's a small state. The demographics are closer to what the Democrats would like, but they're actually, if you look at them, 
not like the demographics of the general election. They actually over-index for African-Americans. And I guess a third thing about that's good about South Carolina is that Biden and his team, who have big sway in this process, did really well. But uh, am I missing anything? And tell me what you think of those arguments. Um, I, I think that's right on. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's something I argued recently was did political favoritism play a role in this. Sure. Sure. Biden did well um, uh, there in 2020. I think what they would probably argue is that that, hey, look, it did help us. But, hey, we want to nominate as a party candidates like me like Biden, who can win right. in the general election. And South Carolina did a good job of, of weeding out folks that, that can't do that, um, uh, or at least with base Democratic Party support. Um, as far as, and, and you know, um, the other part of that is, is that, that um, the feasibility part of the puzzle, right? South Carolina can be shifted into that position. Um, better than, you know, if you if you want to have a, a Southern state, a state with a large African-American population first, South Carolina is the one. There are Republican right. roadblocks to every other Southern state um, to, to going first. Now, that may open the door to conversations about other alternative states outside the South going first. But that's a different argument altogether. But the feasibility argument is, is the main one for why South Carolina got the nod for the top slot. What does the intensity seriousness of this conversation, does it in any way serve as a proxy for the question, will the Democrats even need a primary? Will Joe Biden be running again? Uh, that's a, a big question, right? I mean, uh, all of this discussion is, is mostly moot if, if Biden runs and Biden runs largely unopposed. Um, certainly there are corners of the party that are lining up behind him and saying that they would support him or would be supportive of a re-election, re-nomination run. But um, yeah, you know, um, it, it would remove some, some uh, potential heat from this. But I also think that that the president views this and those around him view this as as a, a, a legacy move, that they're thinking about this as, um, you know, we've got some problems that have been um, uh, we've been in, entrenched in over time. Um, some of them we can make some efforts to change. This is one of those things I think they view as as a potential change um, in the process to revalue um, uh, some, some different voices in the process that have been, um, uh, shunted to, to later points of the calendar in the past. Have you or other experts done any really good scholarship that would indicate that if the order were different, the results would be different specifically how I know it's easy to speculate, you know, Biden has strength in South Carolina and Obama did well in Iowa and then won and a catapult, but then so often that's not true. So, yeah, to go back to my question, we can't definitively say, but have you any, seen anything eye-opening that argues, you know, if South Carolina were first, the results would be this? A couple of things in response to that. One, um, I, I think I argued before this surprising revelation that South Carolina was was kind of anointed as, as the, the new first state in this proposal, that they were in a pretty good position, Right. Um, that, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada go, they have some say in the matter. Um, but, but those results have, at least in Iowa, New Hampshire, have increasingly been discounted over the years, right? That, you know, you can't read a story these days about Iowa, New Hampshire, whether it's the primaries that are upcoming or the results that have just come in without saying, you know what? They're pretty white states. The Democratic Party 
is more diverse than that. And that has a way of discounting those results and saying, hey, let's wait until we've got some Latino voices that are coming out, some union voices that are coming out in, in the Nevada uh, process, some, some African-American voices more prominently um, displayed in, in a, a South Carolina contest. Um, but the South Carolina was in a position right there before Super Tuesday, right? A Super Tuesday that is um, still fairly Southern tinged and has a number of African-Americans participating in, in, in that day of contest as well. Um, they were pretty well positioned as a springboard into that. Um, so then in 2020, yeah, South Carolina, the weekend right before Super Tuesday, Joe Biden gets some, some decent um, endorsements from fellow uh, candidates who've withdrawn. A big endorsement from Jim Clyburn um, that that um, catapults him to that victory and then slingshots him to further success on, on Super Tuesday. Um, that order matters. Um, moving South Carolina from that position to the first position may disrupt the kind of decisive role that, that South Carolina has played in, in past cycles. And kind of what Florida was going for in 2008, um, going at the end of, of January, um, their objective there was, was, hey, look, we want to be that springboard into to Super Tuesday. We want to have that final say after these first round of contests. The other part that I'd raise in this context is the growing importance of the invisible primary. The, the, the period between uh, the point at which uh, uh, votes were last cast in the last presidential election to when votes begin uh, being cast in the first contest of the next round. There's a lot of maneuvering that takes place there, right? Um, a lot of maneuvering that serves as a precursor to, to any contest that we're going to get now. And part of that is fundraising. Um, part of that is obviously polling. Um, and those are things that factored into to the Democratic uh, Party's uh, debate process last time, right? That to be able to get on that stage, you had to demonstrate that you were raising enough money in enough states, that you were um, polling at certain levels and so on and so forth. Those kind of viability markers are an important part of, of the winnowing process, even before you get to the time that people are voting on these things. So that's another thing that I point out right now is the order may or may not matter. What may increasingly matter is what's happening before votes are even cast. Yeah. Let's talk Republicans. They're not thinking of rejiggering their states, are they? But something about how winner take all each of the contests will be and maybe that will have or the thinking goes but you tell me that could have an effect on the fortunes of donald trump versus some unknown non-trump candidate yeah so um as you noted right um the republicans carried over their their early state lineup for for uh, from 2020 to, to 2024 they signal throughout 2021 and 2022 that, that we're going to stick with the same calendar. It's going to be Iowa, followed by New Hampshire, followed by South Carolina, followed by Nevada, and then Super Tuesday, however long after that it may be. Um, so they didn't make any moves there. Does it mean that states won't decide to try and, and jump the queue and, and get into that early period? I don't think so, given the way that both national parties have, have structured penalties against uh, violating states. Um but yeah, I mean, one thing that we can look at now and, and is certainly a, a big part of this is what state parties and states, for that matter, decide to do in terms of, of how they allocate delegates to, to particular candidates based on the results of primaries and caucuses. Early on in that process, before March 15th, all states have to, uh, to be proportional in how they um, uh, uh, allocate their delegates to candidates, um, just based on, on party rules. But, but for all intents and purposes, 
everybody, you, you can't be a winner-take-all contest uh, ahead okay. of, of uh, March 15th. So states after that point, if the contest is still active, have a decision to make in terms of do we want to go winner-take-all? Do we want to go to some hybrid between um, winner-take-all and proportional? Or do we just want to stick with, with a proportional format? But it's, it's really hard to game that out. Um, from from their perspective. I mean, from a state party's perspective, they want to bring candidates into a race. They want to bring a candidate into the state to pay attention to it. Um, um, and and it's hard to gain that out from, from so far in advance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we could argue um, before the <laughs> visible primaries progressed any further that, that Trump would likely benefit from um, an increase in the number of caucuses. It's part of what drove um, the decision making on the state level last time. If you recall, there were a number of states that, that um, opted out of primaries and four caucuses and some caucus states that opted not to hold contests at all uh, because the, the, the president, the then President Trump, was, was running for renomination. Um, I don't know that it was necessarily to protect him, but uh, certainly to create a, a more seamless process um, overall for them. Those state parties are still run by folks that are, are, are um, Trump loyalists on the whole. Um, so those, those folks may still be inclined to, to opt for a process that is advantageous to the former president. Josh Putnam runs the site frontloadinghq.com. He is a political consultant specializing in delegate selection rules and founder of FHQ Strategies, LLC. Josh, thank you so much. Mike, always a pleasure to join you. And now the spiel. In 2022, the richest man in India, Gotham Adani, rose up the ranks of billionaires to pass Bill Gates on the worldwide rankings. By year's end, Adani was the fourth richest man on the planet. Was. Because the underlying strength of his business, Adani Enterprises Limited, was called into question, serious question, by a scathing and what seems to be unaffectively rebutted report issued by an American research and short-selling firm called Hindenburg. I will now tell you how the business model of short sellers works. Short sellers identify a stock whose price they believe is too high. So they take positions, they invest in future prices of the stock that are lower than the price today. If the stock goes down, they get rich. It's very dangerous. There are ways to blow up the short seller's position. And also, technically, there is no limit to how much money they could lose, right? And so what short sellers often do, and what they're incentivized to do, is to make the public case that their position, that a certain stock should be worth less than it's trading for, is the right one. And this way, the market will respond, and they'll become rich. Now, you could see where the incentives might misalign to create an incentive for a firm to put out misinformation or to get it wrong or to exaggerate the bad information they found. And this is why short sellers are sort of uh, the carry-on or vultures of Wall Street. Many people in the non or the long position know that they have to exist. Maybe they've made money thanks to the inside of a short seller. But basically, they're 
betting against companies at a craps table where everyone cheers for everyone else who's betting on the come. Okay? But I just wanted to orient you so you understand that Hindenburg not only does research for the public good, but does research for its bottom line. It wants its research to be convincing, but a counter-argument will always be, no, your research is inaccurate, you just want to make money. Okay, still, what Hindenburg revealed truly spooked markets. And what they found in Adani Limited was, in a phrase, quote, a brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud scheme over the course of decades. Adani issued its own 413-page rebuttal, which I read a lot of, not all the charts, but I could summarize thusly. I know you are, but what am I? You call me brazen? You call us unethical? Here's a quote. The truth of the matter is that Hindenburg is an unethical short seller. A short seller in the securities market books gain from the subsequent reduction in prices and shares. And then it goes on to define what a short seller does, which I assume everyone reading this report would know, and then determines thus the report is neither independent nor objective nor well-researched. Why? Just because they're short sellers? You have to go through and explain point by point why every allegation is untrue. And to my lament, having tried to read most of the 413 pages, Adani attempted this. But they really do spend a lot of time saying na, 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 na. For instance, take section three titled, The Shoe is on the Other Foot, Hindenburg's Act of Concealment. Ironically, for an organization that seeks transparency and openness, not much is known about Hindenburg. So says the Adani rebuttal. Hindenburg alleged Adani had a complex, opaque, confusing, mysterious, troubling structure. Adani answers point after point after point. No, you're just unsophisticated rubes. Some of the allegations are extremely detailed, like, of course, allegation number 46. This is what Hindenburg writes. We found that a silver bar merchant based at a residence with no website, no obvious sign of operations, run by a current and former Adani director, lent $202 million to a private Adani-controlled firm with no disclosure of it being a related transaction party. What's the explanation for the lack of required disclosure? Answer, you just don't understand how these things work. Then there was this section on Gotham Adani's supposed openness to criticism as contrasted with his propensity to have his critics arrested. I'll quote from the Hindenburg Report. Adani has said, quote, I have a very open mind towards criticism. Given this, why did Adani seek to have critical journalist Paranjoy Uathakutra jailed following his articles? Hindenburg goes on. In the same interview, Adani says, quote, every criticism gives me an opportunity to improve myself. Given this in 2001, why did Adani seek a court gag order on a YouTuber who made critical videos of Adani? Now, the answer, according to the 413 pages, is, look, the guy's totally open-minded, but that doesn't mean we give up our rights, our rights to jail critics and journalists. So Adani tried the lengthy rebuttal. It didn't do much. Then he tried appeals to nationalism, spending a day calling Hindenburg anti-Indian. That didn't work. Investors, inspired by Hindenburg, looked under the hood of this Tata and said, yikes. Bad news accelerated for the conglomerate. A couple days ago, major creditors stopped accepting Adani corporate bonds as collaterals, meaning, well, here's how Bloomberg put it, until recently, some of the same securities were judged by the bank to have a lending value of 75%. Now they were being rated as zero. It burst in the flesh. Get this started. Get this started. It's rising. It's rising. It's rising terrible. 
Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes. Last night, Adani decided to not go ahead with the $2.4 billion public offering that had concluded the previous day. It's, 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 uh, oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just laying down massive smoking wreckage. And in the last week, the stock has lost more than half its value, and Gautin Adani has lost over $60 billion. It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the fantasies. That's what Hindenburg does, results in a fiery wreckage. And that's why Hindenburg literally named itself after the Hindenburg. It was a man-made disaster that should have been stopped. Now, the problem in that case was hydrogen. Adani, like many other companies, achieved lofty elevations fueled by the very seeds of its destruction. And that is part of what makes markets, as is the positioning of this new Hindenburg, the short seller, which reaps great rewards by exposing the combustibility of the high flyers. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions, and as of now, a registered silver bar trader. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Doomperu, Jeeperu, Doomperu. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Johnny, that's terrible. Uh, I can't. Listen, folks, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voices. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed.